Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Something Positive for Positive People is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that essentially has become a sexual health communications platform. Today I'm here with Dr. Eveline Dacker, who's a family physician here in Salem, Oregon. And um, this is part of the series that we're doing with the in partnership with the Oregon Health Authority. Uh, thank you for that grant so that we can really understand like the climate of Oregon and how um, sexual health and sexual health care are like what it looks like here. And the overall goal is to create some sort of an intervention that supports people with what their needs are. So uh, we'll begin really with just, you know, first off, I want to thank you for your time, for being here and uh, willing to, for being willing to offer your expertise, your experiences and stories that you have, especially as a healthcare provider in this space. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I guess like first question that I have for you is um, like I have a relationship with you and I understand uh, your passion behind the way that you offer sex positive health care. And like I've gone on to call you an anti-stigmatizing, identity affirming, sex positive uh, health care provider. So I would just like to start out with how do some of these things show up in your work day to day? Sure. Well, let me just say that I um, am a family physician that practices primary care in Salem, Oregon. And I practice, you know, pretty basic primary care, but I also uh, integrate a lot of sexual health and sexual sex positivity in my practice by affirming for where people are coming from. Uh, I also, just a little bit of back, background too, is I was the executive director of Sex Positive Portland from 2018 to 220 for, and 2020, and I do teach how to take sexual histories and teach people how to be a sex positive healthcare provider as a kind of secondary uh, project that I have. Uh, I also teach people how to do sexual communication. So that's a little bit about me. How do I uh, integrate this? Well, I believe that sexual health is part of our whole person health. For example, like cardiac health is part of our whole person health. Uh, pulmonary health is part of our whole person health as well as mental health. And they all kind of integrate together. Unfortunately, in our... Um, basic system of medicine sexuality and i i'm not when i talk about sex i don't mean about penetration or the sex act or orgasm or performance i really mean about integrating the fact that we have this ability to have pleasure within our bodies that help us connect to other people that are important for our mental health important for our physical health uh, it, it's a bigger it's a bigger issue than just an act, and so that this aspect is really not talked about when most people go to the doctor. In fact, the only time people talk about it is if there's a problem, and that's something that I'm working at changing. That I think it's something that's important to address 
for people when they go and see their physician for their wellness exam, their physical exam, not just when there's a problem and not, and that both physicians and patients, like everybody in that room to find, figure out a way of making it more comfortable versus like, ooh, this is something that's really uncomfortable to talk about. And therefore, we'll kind of talk about it, but not talk about it. So like, if you're having some problems, we'll just do a test. And then when you get the results back, we'll just tell you what it is. And then we'll just not talk about it anymore. And I think that really creates a big disservice for, for you know, people when, they, when they're asking for help. Uh, one of the things that I've learned from you and a lot of our dialogue exchanges that is also really a good parallel for what I'm seeing throughout these interviews for this series is that we don't necessarily live in a sex negative society. We live in a sex avoidant society. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you sort of elaborate uh, a little bit more on that in your experience on what it means to live in a sex avoidant society? Yeah, you know, that's a really, I like that. I you really said like it. That. Yeah, I really <laughs> like it. We are very avoidant of it. Because it may, I think a lot of people have this, you know, unconscious bias against sexuality because we're taught from a really young age and that it's something that only belongs in a private setting with one person and does not belong out in display although it is in display when you listen to music and look at commercials i mean it, it's out there but it, it's out there in a way that continues this dialogue of like well we can't talk about sex because if we talk about it then what does that mean about us and it impacts us especially in healthcare because we don't get to know who our patients are and the ways that we have integrated sexuality in our lives actually play much more of a role than just an act of sex. For example, it's a way of connecting with one another. And if we don't know how people feel about their sexuality within themselves, they may have a lot of trauma that's not discussed. Uh, In fact, a lot of people have a lot of trauma around sexuality. Even if they've never been sexually abused, there's still a lot of trauma there, which then impacts the way that they may care for themselves, the way they interact with other people. By pretending sexuality is not an issue, we're also not teaching people how to have boundaries, how to understand consent over their own bodies and their choices. We're not not helping people recognize that sex is so much more than sex. It's really, it really is about like, can I make choices? for what I want, who I allow in, emotionally, physically, spiritually, sexually. Can I make choices about my own pleasure and what is important for me to experience joy? Pleasure is not just about having sex, it's about experiencing joy and awe and uh, in all of our lives. And, And pleasure that we can actually bring to our awareness and to be present with. It, it could be about um, how we take care of our own health for ourselves and for others, especially around STIs, because I think that the biggest problem we have around reducing STIs is not the infection itself, but is actually the way we communicate with each other around that. Um, can we create true intentions that we want with other people and express that? So 
it just, if we're able to bring the whole conversation around sexuality to the forefront, when we get to know who our patients are as providers, we're able to really address and, and help their everything, their mental health, their physical health. You know, I was telling you this story uh, recently about one of my patients who is a, a man, a non-monogamous gay man in a long-term relationship who came in to see one of my partners for urinary burning and pain. And she did three tests. She did a urinalysis and a culture and a test called the PSA, which is the prostate specific antigen, which tells if there's any inflammation going on in the prostate. But because she didn't know or take a history about his sexuality, she didn't even address the fact that he may be at risk for an STI. And so his, t his urine test came back negative but his prostate-specific antigen came back very elevated. <clears throat> this elevation could be due to prostate cancer or it could be due to an inflammation from an STI. So she immediately brought him, she went to the urologist and the urologist sat him down and talked to him about prostate cancer and said, okay, you know, we can do uh, a biopsy or we could repeat your prostate or we could put you in antibiotics. And my patient was like, I don't wanna be on antibiotics if I don't need to, let's just repeat. The prostate test in a couple months so i and he then came to see me and we were talking about it and i'm like not one person talked to you about stis like that this could be the reason that you may actually have this elevated and it might not be prostate cancer unfortunately i actually do think he has prostate cancer but that not being said like there was this big thing that wasn't addressed because we never actually did a sexual history and got to know who this person is it was he said to me gosh this is the one time i actually hope i do have an sti so you know it's not it's one of those places that if we actually became better informed as healthcare providers we wouldn't be thinking oh my gosh if we bring up stis it's so bad and it's so stigmatizing because in this case it wouldn't be is this an issue of healthcare providers not being comfortable with talking about sex or is it about them not being informed about how to talk about sex? I know you're going to say both. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, you know, it always ends up being an unconscious bias, right? We always carry that with us. And I think even myself, even though I could easily talk about sex, I even have sometimes issues like how do I do it better? How do I approach it? Because I don't want to look uncomfortable for my for my patient. And how do I help my patients not feel uncomfortable? And it really, it's both. I think that if we could educate providers how to do it better, then we're able to help guide our patients through difficult conversations. I mean, that's what we do all the time. We have to help guide our patients through difficult conversations. And we do, end of, end of life conversations, chronic medical condition conversations. Like if, if, I, if I know that I could tell a patient that they may have cancer, why can't I ask them about who they are in terms of their sexuality? So that's the part, part that is hard, that it's hard because we're uncomfortable talking about it. But then it's also, because we're uncomfortable talking about it, we don't even figure out how to make it easier. And, and as long as, I mean, as far as I know, there's very limited education in medical school and in residency to teach us how to do that part of it well. In 
my experience with the people that I've interviewed specifically for this series, uh, something that's come up like inside conversation has mm-hmm. been, you know, when or why do people go to the doctor? And for STIs to be as common as they are, I'm finding that even for STI screening, like that's not something that people are being seen for. It's like if it's not a problem, then I'm not there's no need for me to be on top of it. So is this something where we perhaps need to educate the general public on getting into received testing? Not because something is wrong or might be wrong, but just as a way of preventative uh, measures. Like, how can we get people into the practice of getting screened, uh, however often based on their risk factors and their um, activity, their lifestyle? Mm-hmm. You know, this is a multifaceted question. So the first <laughs> question is, is this a matter of educating the general public on also uh, being tested frequently? Yes. So from the provider standpoint and the medical community standpoint and the public health standpoint, it's broken up into risk categories. And these categories are MSM, which is men who have sex with men. And this is not my language. So so please, you know, if you it, have it's any It's on the questions. CDC's website. Yeah, this is what the CDC says. So we're talking about medical, public health uh, language. So there's at men who have sex with men. There's adolescents. And there's high risk. <laughs> and um, And really, the recommendations of the CDC is like, and again, please forgive this language because it's a language that's on the website. Women under the age of 25 need to be tested for chlamydia and gonorrhea every year. Men who have sex with men recommended to be tested as needed up to yearly for HIV, syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. Gonorrhea, chlamydia in the throat, anus, and uh, genitalia, which is a urine test. Women, and this is basic, to be tested um, for HIV and syphilis once in their lifetime or before every pregnancy and tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia before their pregnancy but no other time. Men, to be tested once in their lifetime for HIV and syphilis and then everything else only if there's symptoms. So when doctors hear this, we don't think about bringing it up with our patients, right? Because a person with a penis walks in the door and if we don't know if he is a man who has sex with men or um, or a, wo- a woman comes in, you know, we don't know. If all we're just doing is looking at them and p- putting them into one of these categories, then why would we even bother going down that route of testing? Okay, so I have a real problem with these categories Honestly, and I, I've been trying to deconstruct this in what in some of the writing that I'm doing about destigmatizing STIs. And you know, when you lump every person who has a penis who has sex with another person with a penis into a category of men who have sex with men and say you're high risk, that is not really true. There are many, you know, gay men who are monogamous. And there's also many people who have more than one sexual partner who have low risk for STIs because they may be, they only may, you know, it may be a very regular people that they have 
So what we need to do is actually teach people what kind of, um, I don't even like saying behaviors, but what, what they are doing that may warrant more frequent testing, regardless if you have a penis, if you have a neopenis, if you have a vagina, if you have a neo-vagina, if you are gender What's fluid. Neo? So ne- when I'm saying neo is a surgical. Okay. Like a surgical vagina or a surgical penis or, or a penis that's from hormones. Okay. So um, so regardless of the genital genitals that you have and regardless of the way you identify, because there's a lot of people who are non-binary or intersex or trans that we are not, or we're lumping everybody into these categories that they may not have, they may not be doing the things that necessarily warrant increased STI screening. And then you may have, you know, a heterosexual uh, person who has a penis who's having a lot of sex with a lot of different people who's not one of these categories and they're not having symptoms. But, you know, Really, 50% of people who get chlamydia may have symptoms for 10 days and it goes away, but they still have chlamydia and they still could be passing it to people, right? Regardless if you have a penis or a vagina. And sometimes these symptoms look one way and they don't look like the way that you think. Like you can have herpes that looks like a vaginal dis. You know, if you have a vagina in the cervix, it could be in the cervix and you can't see it and comes out to be watery discharge and pelvic pain. And you may just think, oh, this is menstrual cramping because it could feel exactly like menstrual cramping or I'm having a yeast infection. You know, a lot, there's a lot of things that you may not or you can have a herpes infection in the rectal canal that feels like a hemorrhoid or feels like you're having constipation or irritable bowel syndrome. I mean, a lot of these infections don't present in the classic ways. So if we don't know, if if you as a person are not empowered to think about getting tested regular, on a more regular basis than once in your lifetime, or if the provider doesn't know what you're doing, they're not going to suggest what is really needed. That's, does that make sense? It does. <laughs> it does. And that speaks volumes to sex avoidance because, you know, someone who... The, the patient that you described, they went mm-hmm. in, I'm having these problems. You know, why wasn't sex one of the things that the healthcare providers saw this patient about? Like that part of us is often so disconnected from, you know, the the reality of like interacting with people on a day-to-day basis, you know, coming into a healthcare facility with issues why are we isolating away from mm-hmm. sexual health when, like you said, it's about whole person health? Mm-hmm. So being able to look at each of these parts mm-hmm. and see how one thing may be affecting something else, one thing Absolutely. may be affecting something else. And this critical part of what your patient has going on was just avoided. Right. So that's what, to me, really highlighted with great detail what sex avoidant society means absolutely and and we're not we're just like this provider this co-worker and this is a co-worker of mine and i i teach the importance of taking the sexual history again just never i don't even think put it through her mind to explore that uh it's hard and you know i could see you're with a new person and you don't want to be like, so tell me about your sexual behavior or your sexual, like tell me a little bit about your sexuality or what, what you do because it it feels uncomfortable to the provider to be talking about sex with a new person. And you don't want to make this new person feel like weird too. So you just avoid the whole conversation. 
One of the things that I have put into my practice, which I'm going to, after seeing this, I'm going to discuss with my providers, is I have a sexual history. It's part of the form. Like every year, my patients have to fill out a history form where we ask them about this past year of their drugs and alcohol use, depression, you know, uh, partner safety, um, you know, if they have a gun, if it's in a lock, like, you know, just the basic stuff, they exercise, what their diet is like. And part of that, I actually have some sexual history. In my sexual history, it's like gender identity. What behaviors are you doing sex? Are you having anal sex? Are you participating in kink or BDSM? Are you monogamous? In the past year, have you been monogamous or non-monogamous? Or have you had more than, how many partners have you had in one year? Because people could be serially monogamous, but have had 12 partners, right? So. And people can be non-monogamous and have three partners. Right. Over that same amount of time. Right, right. Yep. right. Or people could, right. And, and, or have two partners and, and be monogamous. So like, um, it's really important. So this way. By having these checkoffs with everything like, oh, I'm, I have a healthy diet and I'm exercising three times a week and no, I have no depression. I'm only drinking once you know, a week. You could say, oh yeah, and I'm having anal sex and I have had 12 partners. So like, it could be easy where you don't actually have to speak it to someone. And that way, the provider, if they look at this form, they could kind of then explore it and be like, oh, I see that you've had this many partners and I'd like to do an STI check for you, you know, because it might be a good idea. Oh, and by the way, you know, it's really important that if you're going to have multiple partners and if you're not using barriers, maybe get an STI check every, you know, before each partner. In fact, I'll just put an order in. So all you need to do is call and just come in and get it done. And you don't even have to talk to me about it. And if the test come back positive, how would you want to be, you know, how is a phone call okay for my medical assistant or do you want a little bit more information? Like, how would you like to be addressed? That way, it, the information is there and it doesn't make it as difficult. But, of course, the provider has to be comfortable in looking at it, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about here in teaching someone to take a sexual history or to take a history is uh, an element of that would be getting providers to be comfortable with uh, requesting that information, receiving that information, and then having to communicate back and forth with the patient about what it is that they're receiving because someone could be looking at what they think is a heterosexual man who is married because they have a ring on, mm-hmm, right? What mm-hmm. you see may mm-hmm. not be what it is underneath that. This person could say, yeah, I have several partners. I'm also engaged in BDSM. I also have sex with right. men. And you would only know that if you asked a question. But if you're uncomfortable asking a question and you don't have these forms, you have assumptions about how this person needs to be treated and cared for. And in that, we miss a lot of potentiality for infections and then this person going on to you know very much knowing that they're in good health because they just saw their doctor Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and potentially pass things on to other partners Mm -hmm. so yeah the aspect of getting providers to become more comfortable with uh, taking a history is critical in std prevention sti minimization uh and yeah, I, I I guess at this point, how do we get there? How do we get to the point of making providers more comfortable with this kind of dialogue with patients? 
<laughs> now you're asking me my home. <laughs> you know, I, I, um, that's a great question. I think just continuing conversations with the importance of recognizing its importance. For example, like, let's just think about things that have changed in medicine in the past two years. One thing I want to address is racism in medicine. And medicine and medical research is very, it's all based in white men. And if it's not, then it's based in white women. And, and again, I'm using these terms in a medical. So when I say man, I mean a person assigned as male at birth and a woman, a person assigned female at birth. Its assignment is based on the genitals that are visible at birth. Uh, it doesn't talk about hormones or anything else or identity. So, But this is what medicine is based on. And you know, there is totally separate categories in the way one should treat and understand lab results based on a person's skin color. Which, why? Like why, I think in the past two years, a lot of physicians have started asking the question, why? Why is the kidney function different for somebody based on their skin color? It doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. Why is this inherent, you know, sexism in medicine? Why is there an inherent racism in medicine? Why is there inherent heterosexual cisgenderedness in medicine? It's all of it. And I think that as we start recognizing our assumptions or even people's weight and the BMI. Your BMI is in this category, but you know, your BMI may be in that category because you're really muscular. It's not to do with that. And so like, why do we make all these assumptions based on numbers and, and without going a little deeper and asking ourselves our own, you know, own racism, own sexism, own cisgenderism, own heterosexualism. And I think that as we're having more and more and more of these conversations, it's going to be harder to ignore it. So my first thing is by having these conversations and by realizing, hey, you know what? People are not acting in the ways that you think they're acting based on the way that they look or they seem. People who are have a BMI of over 35 are not necessarily unhealthy. And people who are thin are not necessarily healthy. So like people who are married are not necessarily monogamous. People who are, you know, claim that they're gay are not necessarily homosexual. I mean, it's just like we... People with disabilities aren't not having sex as well. Exactly. I mean, we're people who are old are not are are still sexual. People so and people who are young may not be sexual. Imagine that. So you know, we just make so we have taught, and I'm saying we as a healthcare provider, as a doctor. I'm not saying we as general people. We as doctors have been taught to lump people into categories. And to treat based on categories. You're an MSM. You need to be tested more frequently, even if you only have one partner. You are a heterosexual married man. You could be tested one time in your life, but hey, they're a swinger. And, you know, and they have multiple partners. Or or that vaginal pain that you're having may not be an infection, but maybe some trauma because you participate in a certain kind of form of BDSM. But if I don't know that... You know, it just, it becomes problematic if we're not trying. Yes, and maybe we believe we have to practice by category because our time is limited. We have to check off forms and we have to play by numbers and and, um, be assessed based on the quality of our care, based on these, it, it just... 
the only way that I think the first way of making change is recognize that we got to get out of that mindset. Yeah. And I want to bring it back to speaking about how people are, uh, the general public, right? If the general public is encouraged to, on their end, be receptive to having this kind of dialogue with their healthcare mm-hmm. providers, maybe even initiating the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw a statistic, I was at a Planned Parenthood, and I saw that 70-something percent of healthcare providers don't initiate the conversation mm-hmm. about sex with their patients. 60-something percent of um, patients don't initiate conversations about sexual health with their healthcare mm-hmm. providers. Mm-hmm. So these numbers are really high for two people who, if this exchange happens, one, we begin to see a shift in how people view sexual health stigma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Two, people are much more educated and aware of the realities of potential exposure to STIs, which you know is the core of the work that I'm doing, especially through something positive for positive people, but uh, as an extension of that through this um, series of podcast episodes exclusive here in Oregon, I'm learning just how much like there's there's this connectedness between uh, the word sex and pleasure, right? Mm. And that's what people lock into. I think that there's sort of a middle ground for a transition to occur that everybody, despite their comfort level or discomfort with talking about mm-hmm. sex and sexuality, mm-hmm. can get on board with. Where we commonly say on the podcast, sexual health is mental mm-hmm. health. So mm-hmm. being able to view sexuality apart as you know teasing out what pleasure is from Mm -hmm. sex sexuality and understanding when we talk about sex we're often talking about intercourse and when we talk about Mm -hmm. pleasure we're often talking about sex which means we're talking about intercourse we've got to detangle Mm -hmm. these Mm -hmm. so that we can get into discussions of pleasure which pleasure means of as the noun Uh, Just having enjoyment, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's part of health. Like if you are able to enjoy your life, where you are, what you're doing, the people that you're surrounded with, um, being able to speak to that as a patient, as a healthcare provider is going to open up the door for us being able to discuss our overall health as well. So when we're speaking to and from the to the patient and from the patient perspective to the provider, being able to identify more of like these self-care focused uh, aspects of pleasure and then being able to get into that. So, you know, understanding to these pieces of uh, sex and sexuality that don't necessarily have anything to do with sex. Boundaries, consent, uh, relationship structures, and being able to identify healthy and unhealthy behaviors. And what I consider to be one of the more important elements of this is to know that if you need support or if you need resources or help, where to go and that you can ask for those things in whatever these spaces are. So when we bring all of that together, what I am sort of, um, the way that I'm processing this is that we have to be able to connect on a common level. Like we talk about looking at people and assuming things about them and being able to label them for the sake of getting in and out of here. But it's almost like a co-creation of a a reference point for us to all be able to speak to when we're in that room patient provider and 
in speaking about pleasure, which everyone should be comfortable with, then we can start to branch out into mm-hmm. those aspects of a person's whole health that will allow for us to get to know the person. And, you know, are you experiencing pleasure or you're not experiencing pleasure? Mm-hmm. And that comes to, well, I'm not experiencing pleasure in my body in this way because I'm having these problems like your patient who had mm-hmm. um, the, the prostate issue, mm-hmm. right? If we were able to get more of an understanding of who that person is in their day-to-day life, then we can transition into the conversations about their sexuality, their sexual um, practices and know, oh, okay, well, this is a way that you could be affected. So tying this all together, and that was very, very, very long-winded, we need a new reference point for what we're talking about when it comes to sexual health in a way that allows for providers to look at their own biases and have their self-reflective moments so that they can initiate more conversations with their patients. And the same thing for patients, to be comfortable with providers and have this reference point of, oh my God, I'm not going to go in here and talk about sex because they're going to judge me. They're not going to, they're going to shame me, but that needs to be the norm so that we can get the best treatment from our providers because we're able to give them the information that they need to work with. But we just have to create that level of safety with a mutual understanding and co-creation of what the baseline is, which we believe is pleasure positivity. Right. For sure. You know, I I would like to disentangle sexuality and pleasure from being the act of penetrative orgasmic sex. An orga- penetrative orgasmic act because not everybody does penetration and not everybody achieves orgasm and they're both okay you know and and one can have a lot of pleasure without either one of those two 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 things but what our patients are doing is important and it's important for people who are who are having like if you have multiple partners and you're not using barriers or if you're having, you know, anonymous encounters or many encounters, or if you're selling, you know, if you're doing sex work that involves uh, touch with another person, because not everything, sometimes I don't like calling them sexually transmitted diseases. I like calling them sensually transmitted diseases because some, some of them are actually more, you don't need the act of sex to get them. You could just be sensual with the person, right? Right. Um, so, so it's all okay. And it, there does need to have some self-empowerment to advocate and to know that if you're going to want to take care of your health, that you're going to go seek out those services and to get more regular testing. And I hopefully most providers won't try to put barriers up for that. But wait, why do you need that? You know, if somebody asks for it, just say yes. I mean, say, okay, here, here here's the swabs. You could do it yourself. You know, it's, I think it does have to go both ways. I think that people have to become self-empowered and understand their needs and that it's okay to ask for this and that providers also have to be okay with meeting their patients where they're at and not where they want them to be at. Ooh, yes. Um, And this conversation is super validating and affirming to what a lot of our interviewees, our guests, um, have been sharing 
on the podcast overall, but more importantly from this particular series, is that a lot of the information that they've gone to find after their STI diagnosis, um, people who've had herpes, we've had people on here with chlamydia, we've had people on here with HPV as well, um, the information that they find after the fact is sort of what they come into through the realm of sex positivity, kink, BDSM, mm-hmm. and they build this comfort with being able to communicate about their sexual health in these communities, in these spaces. And so I'm wondering if there is something to be said for the healthcare providers who can learn something from these communities as well so that when people are coming in for preventative measures or for screenings rather than them having to venture into these spaces post-diagnosis be able to get information that will better set them up Mm -hmm. if they are diagnosed because a lot of the people that I've interviewed they don't get resources that are supportive to them or that would have been helpful to them before their diagnosis Mm -hmm. until after their diagnosis and they find it on their own Right. You know, it's interesting because I developed that social communication framework stars for to teach my patients how to communicate with each other. And all of it is based on lessons in the sex positive communities, uh, lessons I've learned through what kink, what, you know, people are in BDSM are doing and how they're communicating. And, and STARS stands for your like STI disclosure and your turn-ons and your avoids, which are your boundaries and your relationship intentions and expectations, like saying what it is you want and what sex means to you. And then safety and like what, how you could co-create a safe container for one another. So I really would love to teach more providers this framework so that they could easily say, here, these are some things to think, consider, and this is how you disclose to, to pay, you know, to prospective partners and actually teach us as part of like to everybody, even if they're not coming in for STI or problems, but say, hey, this is, it's really important to be able to let's change the way that we communicate with one another around issues with relationships. Like STARS is not just a sex talk, it's a relationship talk. It's a relationship talk that like a few are having, but everybody could be having. And, um, and I think that it does belong in healthcare providers' hands so that we can better enable our, our patients to advocate for themselves. It's part of it's part of minimizing STIs, really. I think the two most important measures to minimize STIs are frequent testing and communicating. You know, disclosing the results as well as disclosing needs, boundaries, um, intentions and safety. All right. That's uh that that's a good place to wrap up. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh we covered a lot. And I very much, again, I appreciate your time coming here and like just this is a really good like check in episode because Mm -hmm. I've been interviewing people who are saying the same things consistently. They were not informed by their healthcare provider in the way that they could have been. They've had to go on to find information Mm -hmm. on their own that's been supportive that they just wish that they had a lot sooner Mm -hmm. and being able to, again, co-create this common ground, this reference point for a patient and provider to be able to give all of the information and have all of the information that they need in order to take the best care of their patient and provide the best care these are things that need to happen. We need to learn how to take sexual histories and get more comfortable with that. 
Evelyn, is there anything else that you'd like to leave us with before I let you go? Yeah, there is. I'm going to do a little plug for something. Uh, if you're interested in creating your own sexual communication guide and guidebook, it is available for free on my website, which is maketimeforthetalk.com. Uh, and that, if you just put in your email, you'll get a free PDF to help you create your own uh, kind of stars talk and relationship talk so, so that you have something already in writing of what you could disclose to people about what you need and want. Awesome. And we'll link to that in the show notes. And um, if people want to get in contact with you, can they just find you through there? Yes. All right. Perfect. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please like, rate, review, subscribe to this podcast and check in with the website and touch base if you want to get in contact, if you want to be a guest, if you are looking for resources, if you want to work together, if you want to interview me. All these things can be done through the Something Positive for Positive People website. I'm on Instagram at H on my chest, TikTok at H underscore on underscore my underscore chest because for some reason it's just not available. Someone took H on my chest and isn't doing anything with it, but it's all good. It is what it is. I'm most active on Instagram and you can also email me, Courtney, at spfpp.org and the website is www.spfpp.org. You can make donations through the website as well to support our work uh till next time stay sex positive or should i start saying pleasure positive something positive for pleasure people (laughs) rebrand in the making (laughs) all right have a good one